Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Oh, dear Lord. You made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? If I were a rich man, all day long I bidi bidi bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. If I Well, that's a little bit of the dream behind lotteries, right? And it's something that you dream about if you are the kind of person who maybe buys a Powerball or Mega Mega Millions ticket. In fact, if you watch a lot of ads for state lotteries, it's amazing how often the word dream comes up. Uh, it's, It's just priced into the whole thing. That's what they're doing. They're talking to you about what you dream about. And the other thing they're telling you, oddly enough, is that it's for a good cause. I mean, it's amazing how many of these ads mention, for example, education and have slogans like, we do good things, stuff like that. Well, that may or may not be true. We're going to talk about that. Actually, it may not be true. Let's just put it that way. Uh, We're going to talk about that here in the first segment. In the second segment, we're going to talk about a radical and I think very intriguing proposal. Um, I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, To go back to something called sortition, which was part of the basis of early democracies, in which um, leaders, uh, you know, people like members of Congress and stuff like that, uh, were chosen by by lotteries as opposed to having elections. Could we could we wind up with worse people? <laughs> Have you looked at Congress lately? Uh, and then at the end, we, we'll talk about the lottery. That would be the Shirley Jackson short story, probably the most read English language short story in the world. I just made up that statistic, but I'm going to insist that it's true. Uh, so join, joining us to get things started is Jonathan D. Cohen, historian and author of For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. There's that word again, Jonathan, dream. This is something that, that everybody has dreams, so everybody maybe will buy a, a lottery ticket. You probably have your own favorite statistic, but just in terms of the amount of money spent or just how pervasive uh, state lottery activities are in this country, just Pick, pick your favorite number to bring up. Uh, sure. And, and thanks for having me. Um, I'll start by saying that one in eight uh, Americans buys a lottery ticket at least once a week. And as of 10 years ago, um, Americans spent more on lottery tickets than on books, sports tickets, video games, music and movie tickets combined. So uh, <laughs> uh, that, I, that tells you something. And in some ways, it's a little bit endemic to humankind, right? We have always gambled. Uh, we have gam- We were gambling probably for a thousand years BC. Um, uh, there's evidence of it in China. Uh, if you read the Bible, the, uh, the soldiers uh, throw lots for the cloak of Jesus after the crucifixion. I mean, we're sort of gambling animals, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
are we $100 billion gambling animals per year, which is what Americans spend on lottery tickets? That's that's another question. Right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, whether or not this is a smart thing for people to do with their money. I mean, I think we know the answer to this. But, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the rationale for governments running lotteries. Typically, governments, we think of governments maybe as appropriate uh, entities to do something about problem gambling. <laughs> but for them to be running lotteries, encouraging betting, running commercials, and Jonathan, often running commercials where they they attempt to tie the lottery to something like the funding of education, uh, or they attempt to tie the lottery to some kind of common sense financial planning. You'll see commercials where some young couple is, you know, moving some stuff around their house and, and it'll say, start a college fund for your kids and for the kids they have. Um, I mean, there's a way in which not only do states run lotteries, but they try to suggest that this is a high-minded activity. Yeah, or or the commercial where it's like, oh, we're moving into a new apartment. Let's leave room for a jacuzzi because we'll be able to afford one once we win the lottery. Um, yeah, it's it's a at once a civic good and a type of gambling that, unlike other gambling, is framed as a civic good. You know, and and that I think is meant to to mollify winner to losers. Excuse me, to mollify losers and say, oh, you didn't win on your ticket. In fact, you haven't won on a ticket in the last month. But that's okay. Don't feel too bad because all the money is going to a good place. And that should is supposed to help sort of justify people's continuous losing and help them encourage them to continue to play on this semi true, semi not true assumption um, that even their losses are doing something good. Right. And and in a way, that idea of lotteries for civic improvements, that also goes back millennia. Um, I think even in the time of Caesar, uh, there were improvements to the, you know, to Rome that might have been funded through lotteries. And certainly the story of, of America, the story of the United States, is a story of getting seed money from lotteries. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it, it, the the colony of Jamestown, you know, in the early 17th century um, was funded in part through a lottery conducted in England. Um, and, you know, on our on our shores in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, you can imagine that a society that is politically defined by its aversion to taxation and is you know willing to go to war with the British because they just don't want to get people don't want to get taxed. Uh, but but you know government needs to work and government needs to pay to do things and at the time um, government they were people folks were turning to government um, or to other institutions to build roads to build bridges to build universities so and a lottery was sort of the best way uh, in in a society that didn't have a modern banking system for folks to c- accumulate large amounts of cash with which to build these massive infrastructure projects. Um, so these were, you know, again, run by states, run by universities like Harvard and Yale to build dormitories. Um, and they were absolutely integral to the colonial American economy and, and getting the nation off, off, off the ground. So fast forward many years to the 1960s. I think New Hampshire maybe starts the first one. And pretty soon we do have governments in business uh, running lotteries and contracting out for advertising. Kat, we're going to play A2 here. Here's what some of that advertising sounded like in some of the earlier days. I'd keep my job, but I'd hire somebody to do it for me. I'd trade the VMT for a BMW. I'd still fight fires, but only on my barbecue. I'd be a well-fed artist instead of a starving one. I'd buy some used furniture at Sotheby's. Tonight, someone could win millions of dollars. I finally put my money where my mouth is. 
New York Lotto. All you need is a dollar and a dream. So there's your title. Uh, and um, there's a way in which I think th- this kind of advertising, it's kind of weird. The, the, the psychological approach of state lotteries is kind of double-sided. W- one of them is, yeah, this is kind of irrational. I mean, that's a really, I mean, if you watch the ad too, it's very nicely shot and it's kind of a musically written. And there's some irony in it. But it's basically about the idea of, yeah, keep your fantasy alive. Pay, pay, give us a dollar. It's more than a dollar these days, typically, but give us a dollar uh, and you can kind of keep your your fantasy of who you're going to be alive. And then there's this other argument, give us a dollar and we'll fund education with it. Um, and and let's talk about both of those things. Let's talk, let's talk about the first one. That's not entirely crazy to say that, you know, if you buy, you know, a lottery ticket every few weeks or something, you can kind of indulge in a fantasy that that you know that will give you maybe some kind of strange solace. I mean, I know I do that. I, I you know once every two or three weeks I go and I buy a Powerball ticket. It costs me three bucks because I do the power play, and then you know I have a I have a chance of living a different life. Um, and and I don't see that as unhealthy. The question, Jonathan, is how do we know when it gets unhealthy or impractical or exists in a way that's doing us way more harm than good? Yeah, and I think. Um, just to, to take you a, as an example, games like Powerball, Mega Millions that have these massive, massive jackpots are in, in some ways the most benign, but in other ways the most harmful. And we're not going to have time to sort of split hairs there. I think the, the massive, massive prizes are super harmful to our psyche and our imaginations about wealth, but they're pretty benign in that they are a relatively small percentage of total annual lottery sales, you know, no more than 20% per year. And the real stuff that is that that is doing harm to a lot of people who can't afford it are games like scratch tickets, uh, which constitute roughly 60% of total annual lottery sales. And if you've been to you know any convenience store or gas station, you know, literally anywhere, uh, you'll see people throwing down a lot more money on tickets, scratching those tickets, turning the winnings back in right away for money, using that money for tickets, and so on, uh, which is which is really harmful. Doesn't really provide that sense of dream that Powerball and Mega Millions tickets do, um, and is really taking money from people who who can't afford to play. I mean, there are scales of this kind of stuff too, and it, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the companies that can run lottery applications. I'm looking at you, scientific games. Also, try to get states interested in stuff like Kino. Kino obviously has a completely different feedback cycle. Uh, there's a way in which, you know, over a very short cycle, lights are flashing and there's, you know, sounds happening and there's uh, attempts to get you kind of excited and small little bursts of reinforcement. I mean, it is sort of the difference between a bottle of wine and a vial of crack. I mean, you you could argue that a lottery ticket at least is is a little bit more inert than some of the other things that the big gaming companies would like us to do. Yeah, and and it, it and these these also vary by state. You know, in a couple states like Oregon and and Delaware, there there's basically the equivalent of slot machines that are sort of run by the Lottery Commission, which is again similar to to Kino, which is a big game in Massachusetts in particular. Um, but the the these companies that you mentioned who to put it nicely is that they work with the lottery commissions to put it not so nicely is that they own these lottery commissions hook, line and sinker. (laughs) Um, The, the lottery commissions, you know, their jar, their charge, their job from the state, from the state governor, from the state legislature is to raise as much money as possible for the state and sort of civic consequences be damned. 
they're not there. It's not their job to worry about problem gambling. It's not their, their job to worry about whether people who are playing can not afford it. It's their job to raise money. And these companies um, are, I guess, involved and, and integral to that effort in pitching new games, helping supply new kinds of tickets, introducing the same tickets at new price points, um, and just really facilitating uh, states and their bet, uh, pun intended, on the gambling economy. One thing that makes me a little nervous to know is, well, let me put it to you this way. So I do buy a Powerball ticket every so often, and I usually buy it at the same gas station, and I go in there, and I ask the guy. He's a very nice guy. It's always the same guy. It's the same time of night that I'm doing this, and he's very nice, and he says, good luck at the end, and I say, well, good luck to you, and there's sort of you know a little bit of a human exchange there, and even that has some kind of potentially uh, elevating and, and society-strengthening uh, micro-function, but um, and and I, I wouldn't feel comfortable going going into the same guy and say I need twenty Powerball tickets based on these numbers which I've obtained by cutting crows open and counting their entrails. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to seem like a person with a problem. It makes me a little nervous that there's something called jackpot now, Jonathan, where in fact it could be right on your smartphone to do this stuff. Yeah, and and so seven states have you know sort of fully integrated legal online lottery apps where you can buy lottery tickets and jackpot as you mentioned, is sort of an app um, that folks, even in other states, are able to use to buy lottery tickets online. And and the problem here, to sort of distill your story, uh, is is frictionless betting, uh, is sort of like the one-clickification of Amazon kind of thing, where you can just buy thousands of Tide Pods if you need them, you know, with, with at the drop of a hat. Uh, sort of the same thing where, where at least you have to, in some states, you even have to get cash, right? You can't pay with a credit, credit card or a debit card. You have to drive to the convenience store. You have to sit there. You have to hand the guy money. You have to get the tickets back. You have to scratch the tickets. Not anymore uh, in some states and in some places uh, with, with these apps. As you can just sort of, the, the, the endless scroll that you have on your phone already can just be an endless scroll of losing money uh, through lottery tickets in a really, really problematic and dangerous way. Yeah. I do want to say there's a Tide Pod shortage coming. I read that somewhere on, on the internet. So, uh, so maybe we should be buying. That's more a Amazon, very, very rational behavior. I hate to see it lumped in with uh, problem gambling. So, um, let's talk a little bit about also the other thing that's kind of a fiction, which is that these these sales turn into public monies that, in substantial ways, benefit important state programs like education. Take it away, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the word "substantial" I think was the key the key word you said um, because. State lotteries do raise money for public services and, and the services that they advertise, but it is never, ever to the scale um, that they promise or that they claim or you know when lotteries were created that they were that they were that that was initially anticipated. Um, lotteries on average nationwide in the 45 lottery states raise about one maximum two to three percent of total annual state revenue, which, is effectively a drop in the bucket as far as the state is concerned. Um, but as I hope has been clear, the spending on lottery tickets is a lot more than a drop in the bucket uh, in the income of poor families. So we're sort of doing a lot of harm to people who can't afford it. Um, and it's their sort of pennies and dollars that add up to what ultimately amounts to pennies for the state budget. Right. And I just want to I, I want to come back to that in just a second. But I also want to say, as somebody who has in the past covered state legislatures, I can tell you what they do if you give them... 10 million or 100 million dollars in new revenue they 
they they do other things. I mean, including say to their major donors, you know what? We can quit. We can cut the corporate tax now. We can do this. We can do that. They don't necessarily say, well, all of this has really got to go to a good cause, and it's got to enlarge our spending on something with a substantial social benefit. Uh, they don't do that. They move money around. I mean, if you watch a budget process in any state legislature, you're going to see it, it. Just there's no way it can be that kind of straight arrow. Right. And in, in some states, this has been a problem in New York, Virginia, Florida, uh, Illinois, California. The, the problem has been that the, the lottery money is, is supposedly allocated for education. But for every lottery dollar that goes into the education budget, a normal appropriation dollar comes out. So the lottery supplants uh, normal spending on education rather than supplements. There's no actual net gain for education whatsoever. It's exactly like you said. It's just an extra $100 million, couple hundred million dollars for the legislators to play with uh, with their budgetary arithmetic. Yeah, I think there are some states where spending per pupil actually went down after the institution of the that, state That's library. right. That's right. So, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's a myth. So then the last part of this, and this is something that I think people know. I don't know whether they take it to heart, but this is a regressive tax, right? This is something which people who have less money, uh, people who are often um, people of color, um, people who have already existing disadvantages wind up spending way more of their income than people who are affluent. But I'm sure you could enlarge on that much better than I can. Um, no, that's exactly right. Uh, I'll say sort of for, for full explanation, roughly 50% of Americans buy a lottery ticket once a week. Uh, or excuse me, once a year, once a year. So if you look on average at the annual lottery players nationwide, it looks a lot like the average person. But when you dig down into who is spending the most money and buying tickets the most often is exactly as you said, you see a clearly regressive tax um, that is taking a disproportionate share of money from lower income, less educated, non-white uh, and disproportionately male players. Um, and it is, you know, as much as uh, 70 to 80 percent of total lottery sales come from the top 20 to 30 percent of lottery players. And these are folks who fit all those demographic categories I just mentioned um, and who, you know, to put the fine point on it, really can't afford to be betting as much as they are in many cases. We sent our superstar intern, Stacey Addo, uh, out into the streets to ask people what they do with their lottery winnings. Kat, this is a one. If you won the lottery, what would you do with the money? How much? Let's think big, like billions. Oh, man. Uh, I want to say, like, I'd make a safe investment, but I'd probably, like, <laughs> buy a car or something. Um, travel, pay for college. I think I'd donate some of it, and then I'd put most of it for my college, all of it for my college education. Yeah. So a very smart thing to do is just don't tell anybody. Get a lawyer, get an attorney, check out your bread to your family and things like that, and then put your money aside and good investments and get good ROI and and just sail, and that's what I would do. Use it towards charity. We're gonna set up shop in the community, you know, so less fortunate and stuff like that, I have more jobs, straight up. I would finish paying for my college and then buy Airbnbs for Ukrainian refugees. Pay off all of my debt and my parents' debt. Yeah, okay, <laughs> what would you do with the money? Probably the same as mom, uh, pay off debts and stuff. I mean, I don't have any, but theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What debt do you have? <laughs> All right, great work, Stacy. I mean, I don't know. These are people, I think, in a suburb who are willing to talk to 
a public radio reporter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also, I think people do say that and think that. And one thing that we should dispel, that you have dispelled, is the myth of the miserable lottery winner. There's this idea that most of the people who win large sums, huge sums in, in Powerball or Mega Millions, uh, come to ruin, founder on the rocks of affluence. That turns out not to be exactly right, right? It turns out to be completely false, uh, which is good news, I hope, for all the folks that you interviewed for when, not if. Um, they hit the jackpot of their own. Uh, there is there is a sense sort of a, a, a if people know two things about the lottery, they know that it's a regressive tax and they seem to know that all the lottery winners end up broke and miserable, um, except it turns out that a lottery winners do not end up broke and miserable. Um, there are a couple cases from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s of sort of one or two people here and there who did, in fact, lose money or lose everything. Um, but their stories just get recycled over and over and over again. And uh, it makes it seem like there's this recurring trend when in fact there's a couple cases from 20, 30 years ago and studies show it's just not prevalent. Um, lottery winners in general nationwide and in other countries are happier, healthier and wealthier than the rest of us. And the vast, vast majority are exactly as one of the folks who was just interviewed claimed, uh, you know, living on an island somewhere, um, just sailing around, living off the returns to investment uh, and, and all the money that they've made. Right. And I think also it's kind of easy to have a good chuckle over these people uh, who believe that they're going to win and and live on an island. Uh, on the other hand, first of all, as I just said, I <laughs> I don't know how many. That's you. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know how many Powerball tickets I buy per year. It's probably less than fifty-two, but it's probably more than twenty-five. Uh, and it seems to me one of the things that we we're not good at is is numeracy. Uh, you know, the, the understanding numbers well enough to understand a what our real chance of winning is, what it compares to, and also and this is something that I that I did read somewhere and took it to heart. Well, mostly, except when I don't, uh, which is, you know, it, it, it's not a dumb thing or a terrible thing or anything like that to buy, say, one Powerball ticket a week or every two weeks. The idea that buying two or five Powerball tickets vastly increases your chances of winning because, of course, my chances of winning are five times greater. Of course, I have a much better chance of winning. That's the way, first of all, to ruin. And it's also kind of, you know, for people who really do understand uh, numbers, unlike me, um, that's sort of a myth. That's right. And it's, I mean, the odds of winning the mega millions, just to put a fine point on it, literally are if you took an ant, released it onto four football fields, and stabbed a needle into the ground, uh, that is your odds of winning the mega millions. Uh, so, really, would it be help that much if it's two football fields instead of four? Um, I think. In recent years, as as these games, um, as lottery commissions have made these games harder to win in order to make the prizes bigger, they've just been sort of toying with people's minds, uh, it, which is that your brain is just not well suited and is not designed to understand the mathematical improbabilities of that magnitude. Um, you, you just can't fathom what it means to be a one in 302 million odds of winning. Uh, so the prizes can get bigger because, you know, it already feels so improbable um, that it might as well just get bigger and, and you, you can win more money when you do win. Um, but you're, you're exactly right. Buying a second ticket does, of course, split your odds of win or double your odds of winning, um, but not nearly by the order of magnitude that people would like to believe. Right. I mean, it's pro probably closer to not cutting the football fields from four down to two, but cutting the number of ants or enlarging the number of ants from one to two. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, and one thing I'll just say as the, towards the end here, we're, we're going to have to go to a break, but 
you know, so today, just to prepare for the show, I get the three Powerball tickets that I left in my car and forgot never to check, which is another problem. Uh, and brought them into my office, and I went over them. And so the Powerball tickets are five numbers plus a, a Powerball number. Um, on those three tickets, I didn't have – so that's 18 possible correct numbers. I didn't have any of them. No ticket <laughs> had even one number uh, that, that corresponded to the drawing. That That's how far you have to travel, really. I mean, to me, it, it says, oh, well, it's not like I was close, you know, if I just had a little bit more. I mean, these are very, very hard games to win. Um, I guess maybe my last question is, I mean, I assume we're stuck with this. Is there any way to make it any better? Is there any way to improve on what seems like uh, a, a pretty, you know, a, a pretty vitiating process for society. Yeah, I think there are things that could be done that have many of which have historical precedent that would sort of make the lottery a little less harmful to folks. Um, these are things like putting caps, you know, maximums on the large jackpots to sort of reduce jackpot fever a little bit and sort of bring the temperature down. Uh, overall around the lottery. Um, states are in the process of introducing scratch tickets at higher price points. You know, in Texas, you can now buy a $100 scratch ticket. Um, I think we could uh, maybe get rid of those. And then you've already alluded a couple times to the advertisements. I think the, the the content and the amount of advertising could really be be looked at and could be regulated or limited by the federal government or by state governments. And again, that would really sort of I think, make the lottery a little bit less enticing and I hope in the process a little bit less um, alluring to people who who really shouldn't be playing as much as they do. All right. Jonathan D. Cohen, a historian and author of For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. Hey, I just want to quickly, before we break, Kat, I want to just quickly tell a story because I promised myself I would do it. Just... You know, because some of what we just said is pretty bleak. So I went to school with a guy named Jerry Carangelo. He was just a great guy, very sweet, quiet, but also kind of a mischievous person. And I fell out of touch with him. And then he died a few years ago. And I went to his memorial service. And they told this amazing story that he used to buy a, a Powerball ticket every week. And he would come into work and he would give it to a secretary, the same secretary every time. And he would say, could you just look it up and see if I won? And she would look it up and he, and he wouldn't have won. Uh, and one day, this is the mischievous part, he waited until the drawing, found out what the Powerball number was, and then went and bought a ticket with that number on it. Then did the same thing, went in, handed the ticket to the secretary, said, could you just see if I won? And of course, it looked like he had. She went nuts, the office went nuts, and then he got to tell them that he actually was not a newly made billionaire. Anyway, so there could be some fun and happiness in all of this. We're going to talk about a very different use of lotteries when we come back from this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So yes, instead of elections, what if we chose our elected representatives somewhat randomly? Uh, That is what we're going to talk about now. It's a fascinating idea, and an idea that I have not been able to fall out of love with uh, all morning today. Uh, Alex Guerrero joins us now, professor of philosophy at Rutgers University and author of the forthcoming book, Lotocracy, The Case for Democracy Without Elections. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So we should say this isn't a new idea. This is an old idea, right? Some of the, uh, the earliest earliest stirrings of democracy involve the idea of picking people through, uh, through lotteries or some kind of random selection process. Say a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, the, uh, the origins, many people uh, attribute the origins of democracy to ancient Athens, and for the Athenians, they would have thought of elections as connected to oligarchy and ruled by a few. Democracy, you know, ruled by the people, really was connected to lottery. So you have people like Aristotle saying, you know, the appointment of magistrates by lot is thought to be democratic and the election of them oligarchic. Uh, now, ancient Athens had a number of different institutions, only some of which were uh, populated by random selection, but it was a core part of the system and really seemed to be the main way people thought of enshrining this idea of rule by the people, you know, giving anyone a chance to have political power. So we live in an era where there's, um, I mean, in some ways it's a great idea, a great time to propose an idea like this because (laughs) there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the people who do wind up in office. And some of that is because they're self-selected in two different ways, right? One of them is maybe more than two different ways. One of them is they're sort of implicitly hungry for power, which is not always a good thing. Uh, And the other thing is just they are disproportionately wealthy. It's kind of the opposite of the conversation we just had about who plays Powerball. The people who play this game have a lot of money, more money than the average person. Very much so. I mean, they end up being disproportionately wealthy, but also disproportionately male, uh, often have backgrounds as lawyers or business people rather than other kinds of occupations, disproportionately uh, white, at least in the United States. And so there's a lot of this skew that happens through elections. And I don't think it's an accident. I mean, that's part of what the Athenians were on to when you think of what it takes to actually get elected. You need lots of support. And that often requires having a lot of social influence, economic influence, or at least ties to people who have that kind of influence. So in your ideal version of this system, what would happen? Ah, So, I mean, there's a lot of components. So the idea of using random selection is, as we've said, an old one, but there's a question of how to update it for the modern world. You think of a modern political community 
where you have 5 million or 50 million or 300 million people, how are we going to possibly use random selection? And so I'm very clear that I don't think we should randomly select one person to be president, to have power over everyone. Uh, in the book, I argue for greatly diminishing the role of the executive. That's somewhat of a separate topic. Uh, but the system, as I envision it, is relatively straightforward. So rather than having a single generalist legislature like Congress, where we have two chambers, the House and the Senate, and each of those are populated by elections, right? People have to be elected. Instead of that, we'd have something like uh, 20 different single issue legislatures focusing on particular policy areas. So agriculture, healthcare, education, or energy. And for each of these single issue legislatures, you'd have 300 people chosen at random from the entire political community. And they would then come together, they'd serve three-year terms, uh, they'd be staggered, so you have 100 new people on each of these uh, in any given year. Uh, and they would come together not necessarily knowing anything about the issue or not knowing more than any of the average, uh, what the average person would know about the issue, uh, but there'd be various mechanisms to help them learn more. So there'd be learning phases uh, where they'd hear from experts and advocates and stakeholders about different policy ideas in that area. They'd engage with the community at various, you know, at various times, hearing from the public, including activists and stakeholders. Uh, there'd be deliberation among the people who'd been chosen as they talk through some of the different ideas. Uh, and then eventually they'd have the ability to directly enact legislation in that, in that policy domain. So if they work in education, if they're in that uh, single issue legislature, then they could enact education policy. And so that's the very you know rough sketch of the the idea, right? And we should say versions of this are, are tried in various places. Um, proposing climate, po you have these citizens assemblies for proposing climate policy in France. I think Ireland's used it for a few things, including I think the, the um, decision to legalize uh, abortions. Um, I think Iceland had a citizens panel to kind of begin drafting a new constitution. I mean, the, it's it's not unheard of. Um, I guess. A couple of things will will occur to people. One of them is we have at least a theory of accountability. Uh, if you don't do a good job, if you don't serve the interests of the people, um, you won't win your next election. Um, now, anybody who's covered politics uh, can see why that is not entirely a good way to think about it. But it is a way that some people think about it, that these people wouldn't be accountable to any set of voters. So there's something fundamentally anti-democratic about that idea. What's your response? Yeah. So I think, I mean, an important idea is, so accountability, as we talk about it, we often think of it, uh, not not in quite these terms, but when we elect a representative, they're sort of there to do our bidding in particular. We've chosen them. Now we here is complicated, right? Because that's a majority maybe at in some political jurisdiction, but maybe, you know, 51% and 49% aren't really that happy with the person in power at all. So there's those kinds of already a bit of uh, uh, play with the idea of accountability, but in some sense they're accountable in that they might lose their job. But again, it's as you were sort of anticipating, it's largely theoretical, I think, in a lot of cases where many of the elected officials are really insulated from the general public uh, for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they you know, are in a you know, dramatically gerrymandered district, but also maybe the issues they're actually working on are ones that the public don't know a lot about don't really understand what's being done in any detail. And so they aren't really able to hold the elected official meaningfully accountable on that issue. 
Uh, now, on, on the lotocratic side, when you have people who have been chosen at random, the idea of representation would be really different. It wouldn't be somebody that has been chosen by you to go serve your interests, where then you've set up what's called by economists a kind of principal agent problem, where we're sort of the principals and we've chosen this person to be our agent in the same way that you might hire somebody to be your lawyer or you go to a doctor and choose that person. Uh, in those ways, we sort of sometimes turn over our interests to other people and try to get them to make decisions for us. That's not what's going on with sortition, with random selection. Instead, the sense in which people are representatives is that they're like us. They have this kind of demographic represent representativeness. Um, it's a microcosm of the whole. So instead of thinking that, well, this is a person I've chosen and that's why they're going to do things, I need some accountability mechanism on that story. Here, the accountability is just going to come from the idea that these are people like us with interests like ours who will think about these problems in the same way that we might. And in that sense, they'll be representative, but we don't need to have the same kinds of mechanisms of accountability. Now, sure, we'll need some things right, to make sure they're actually showing up and paying attention. And so there might be sub, you know, little mechanisms along the way to make sure that people are really engaged. But there isn't the same idea that they will end up deciding uh, things that are good for the public because we hold them accountable. That's the problem with the elections. We're setting up this powerful group of people, and there's a question of how to keep them doing things on behalf of the public. For the lotocratic system, the reason they'll do things on behalf of the public is they just are the public, right? So you're getting people, ordinary people, involved in the political decision-making, and only for a short period of time. This isn't their career. This isn't their long-term job. They're not trying to stay in power. They'll be there for a while. They'll think about the issue that's brought in front of them and they'll make a decision. And we have reason structurally to think that those decisions will line up well with what's in the public interest. Yeah. I just want to say about accountability. I mean, I have covered politics for a long time. Uh, accountability is disproportionately placed in the hands of pressure groups, lobbyists, and major campaign donors. And sometimes all three of those are basically the same people. Uh, so you can, I mean, you know, it accounts for the disproportionate influence of an organization like the NRA on gun policy, uh, often in the teeth uh, of uh, of polling, which suggests that people really want some things to change. So, yeah, I don't think it really particularly works very well. I just, I'm running out of time here, and this is such a really interesting idea. I, I guess some people also might wonder about expertise. Now, you've talked about that process of soliciting information from stakeholders, from knowledgeable people. But, I mean, if Argentina implemented sortition tomorrow, they'd also have raging inflation <laughs> and a real problem with the peso. Um, and I guess one question would be how... What about getting people up to speed? I mean, are you confident that, that people can get the right kind of information, sort through it, and make good decisions about a complicated situation like that if they are just randomly selected from the voting public or however we structure our pool? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that it could be made to work. Part of that is focusing the, the people who are randomly chosen on one area, one policy area rather than what we have with congress this generalist legislative structure often congress people know very little about most of what they're voting on they might be sort of specialists on a couple areas in committees or subcommittees on those areas but then otherwise they're just kind of going with the party often wouldn't be able to tell you much about the detail of the issues they're voting on and i think that's where we get a lot of capture kind of special interest coming in and really dictating the way things are going to go 
So the randomly chosen people, they're, they're going to have to get up to speed at least about one area. But I think that makes the burden on them somewhat less and at least somewhat more manageable. They also aren't required to know everything about that area to make good policy decisions. So just as with other areas, so you suggest, you know, uh, you know, financial policy matters, uh, things that we currently have, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve maybe handle here. That's something we've already taken out of the hands of the people. Elected officials aren't directly just setting interest rates for all kinds of good reasons. And we could keep some of those same kinds of institutions around with a lotocratic system. So there's no reason to think every single policy area has to be handled in this way. Right. And, you know, look at the people who do it now. How hard could it really be? Uh, all right. So Alex Guerrero, uh, professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, author of the forthcoming book, Lotocracy, The Case for Democracy Without Elections. Thank you for being with us. We couldn't possibly do this episode without talking about the lottery, which we will do in just a second. The very first words of a It's time to say thank you to some people who were not chosen by lotteries. Uh, Kat Pastor is our technical producer. We would never risk something as important as that to a lottery, uh, and nor would we risk the producing of this episode to anyone other than McCusker, formerly known, formerly known as Carolyn McCusker. So yes, uh, I should say something before we start on this final segment. We are going to, quote, spoil, unquote, Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery, uh, during this, because there's no way to talk about it without doing that. Like, how did you get, were you homeschooled or something? <laughs> how did you get through even 12 years of education without being asked to read this story? Uh, anyway, we have to talk about it because it just, you know, when you say the lottery, that's what you think about. Uh, that's what I think about anyway. Our guest is Ruth Franklin, American literary critic uh, and the author, most relevantly, uh, of Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, which won the National Book uh, Critics Circle Award for Biography and was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2016. Who better than to tell us about Shirley Jackson and the lottery. First of all, Ruth Franklin, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. And there's a way in which Shirley Jackson has a much more broad and, and diverse oeuvre than, than this. But there's a way in which this, this story, I don't know, can you describe sort of the way, the degree to which it is just kind of iconic and indelibly associated with her? Absolutely. Well, iconic certainly is the right word. I mean, as you say, Jackson's body of work is diverse. She wrote six novels, dozens of short stories, and even memoirs about her life as a mother. But the lottery, you know, for better or for worse, is the story that I think will always represent her. Um, and, you know, even at the when, when it was uh, first published in The New Yorker 75 years ago, um, it provoked this flurry of, of reaction. You could say that it went viral, you know, in the way that a story could go viral in those days. And it has just kind of gone on reverberating with its readers. Uh, 
And so I'm now going to spoil the story. So put your fingers <laughs> in your ears and make a high-pitched noise or something like that, whatever it is that you do. It's a beautiful day in June. People in this little village are coming out. They are participating in some kind of lottery. It's, it's really a drawing where they each draw a slip. One of the slips has a black dot on it. Uh, we still were reading the whole story. We don't know what the heck is going on here, but they're talking among themselves. Uh, it turns out that the person with the black dot is uh, a mother. Uh, and what we don't understand and, and we find out is that everybody in the village, including the children, are now going to take stones and stone her to death. Um, so I, <laughs> I know it doesn't seem like a feel-good story. That's because it's not. But do we know anything about – we know a lot about Shirley Jackson. We know from your book a lot about Shirley Jackson. Is there anything you could, we can sort of take from what we know about Shirley Jackson and imagine how this got onto the page? I know that's a really reckless thing to do with an author. But anything that she ever said about how or why she wrote that story? Well, absolutely. I mean, she, she has a whole um... – essay the called biography of a story in which she describes uh the process of writing the lottery you know as with so many things you know she tends to mythologize a little bit so we can't take it you know straight word for word but you know the lottery comes out of um the interests that had always kind of preoccupied her from the beginning really to the end of her career you know she wrote about outsiders about people who were uh cast out of society for some reason or another, usually, you know, not a good reason, or people who feared that kind of ostracism um, and estrangement. And, you know, from a very early age, she was interested in mythology and the lottery, you know, some, there's some speculation that the lottery draws on, you know, this anthropological right of uh, when people would choose a scapegoat to kind of be responsible for, um, either creating, you know, generating a good harvest season or for kind of expiating the sins of a, of a people or a culture. So, you know, I think that element goes into it. And then, of course, you know, it's a story very much of its time, published in 1947, you know, a year when, you know, the country is kind of reeling from what it learned about the barbarism of World War II and, the you know, what people had newly demonstrated themselves to be capable of, you know, both in terms of the Nazi concentration camps and the dropping of the bomb on Japan. And then, of course, we're also heading into the Cold War, where people, you know, were encouraged basically to spy on their neighbors and report, you know, anybody who had ever been a member of the Communist Party as, you know, a potential, potential source of destabilization. Yeah, I, I think, I think know, that's really important. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. All these yeah. things kind of come together in her imagination. Yeah. 47 is sort of really 46 maybe is the beginning of the so-called second Red Scare, which is going to lead by 1950 into McCarthyism. Uh, and writers, imaginative writers are famously good at seeing around corners. Um, my guess is she, she might have intuited where we were headed with all that. But I also, it makes sense that it's a confluence and a, an accumulation of things. Just because it exists, let's hear a little bit of a very reluctant Shirley Jackson reading a little tiny bit of the story. This, once again, is the ending of the story. Uh, here's what it sounds like. See one cat. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers, with Mrs. Graves beside him. 
It isn't fair, it isn't right. Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. So she didn't want to do that. She wasn't Gore Vidal. She wasn't going to go do a lot of radio and television. She was uh, much more withdrawn than that. I think, isn't it her son who records this? That's right, yeah, Bennington College. So um, another thing that happens is this appears uh, originally in the pages of The New Yorker. And the readers of The New Yorker, although they've read challenging prose and fiction in the past, they are maybe not ready for this. This is, was an unusual amount of pushback to this story, right? Absolutely, yeah. She received, you know, probably several hundred letters in reference to the story. The New Yorker actually issued a press release saying that they had never before received so many letters in response to a work of fiction. And, you know, Jackson always liked to say that the letters were hate mail. People were really angry in response to this story. They were, you know, they wanted to cancel their subscriptions. They were angry personally at her for writing it. But what I actually found when I was researching my biography, and I went through a scrapbook of about 150 letters that she kept, it's now at the Library of Congress, uh, was that most of the readers weren't angry. They were confused. They really, really wanted to know what the lottery meant. And they were puzzled that she had left it so open-ended and so, you know, so open to whatever your potential interpretation might be. Right. There was a, a writer named Georgia who said, I'm hoping you'll find time to give me further details about this bizarre uh, custom the story de- describes, where it occurs, who practices it, and why. I mean, they were sort of treating it as journalism as opposed to kind of an allegory or, or something along those lines, right? Right. I mean, it really befuddles us to think how anybody could think that this was a true story. But in fact, you know, there's kind of a, a reasonable explanation for it, which is that in those days, the New Yorker didn't differentiate in its pages between fiction and nonfiction. It didn't mark um, pieces as you know belonging to one category or the other. And Jackson writes the story, you know, as we can hear even in that little clip. It's written in such a kind of a deceptively simple, plain, very logical style. It kind of hits all the factual points, you know, who, what, where, why, when, and all that. And so it's you know it's just plausible enough to think that some people might have read it as a true story. Yeah. But again, there were very, most people, you know, weren't asking where the lottery was held. <laughs> most people just wanted to know what on earth she had meant by it. Right. Uh, by the way, I, I, it's being pointed out to me that was a writer from Georgia, not a writer named Georgia. We have to stop now, but this is fascinating. Ruth Franklin is the author of Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. Uh, once again, thanks to Stacey Addo, our wonderful uh, intern. And we will be going right now, but uh, thank you very much. And sorry about this song.